Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be here at last. It's lovely to have this opportunity uh, to, to, to preach for the first time uh, as officially full-time elder. Uh, but we just wanted to say a big thank you for the welcome you've given me and, and the family uh, since arriving in Kenilworth. Thank you especially to those who uh, went to the house before we even arrived and painted our bedrooms, which was a really just a lovely uh, thing, and we really appreciate that. But lots of, lots of, in lots of different ways, we've been really welcomed, and we're really grateful. So thanks for that. And thank you uh, for praying, Peter. Uh, do you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14? If you haven't got a Bible, uh, there are some by the front door if you want to grab one. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, listen along. I want to start with the question. How do, you, how do you feel when something big kind of comes near in your life? Maybe something like, for example, moving house or having a new job. Uh, these are big stressful things that, that we've just been through. And they, they, sometimes they, they can play on your mind. They can weigh heavily. They can, they can keep you awake. And I, I've not had any sleepless nights, but I know I've kind of been churning things over in my head sometimes. Maybe there are other things for you. I know for me, travel is a big one. So if I'm going on a big holiday or tr- doing a big journey, as it comes closer, I kind of feel the kind of tension building and that, and that, that d- just something to do with me. My best man, he uh, insisted actually on our wedding day that the speeches should be before the food, because otherwise he said, I'm not going to be able to eat anything, because uh, I'm going to be too nervous uh, about my speech. Public speaking uh, does that, I think, for a lot of people. There's different things, aren't there, for each one of us, based on our personality. But it's not surprising when big things come on the horizon, sometimes they can really disturb us and weigh heavily upon us. And our passage today gives us some insight into Christ's experience uh, as he prepares to go to the cross as he prepares to give up his life, that's kind of a world-changing event as he prepares to do that. We're going to see something of his emotions, his reactions, uh, as that becomes imminent. And I hope it will be an an encouragement for us to see that in a number of ways. Now, when I found out I'd been given Mark uh, 14, 42 verses of it as my first sermon, I was kind of like, what am I going to do? There is so much in this passage. How am I going to do it justice? In one sermon, and as I was preparing, I was reflecting, you know, do I try and cover it all, or would it be better to perhaps focus on a particular section? And just as I was reading through and praying, I just kept coming to the, that, that final section in the Garden of Gethsemane. It really kind of spoke to my heart and what happens there. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to focus our time this evening, on that particular section. Uh, but before we get there, it would be good to, to just give you a very quick overview of the passage as a whole, uh, and then I would encourage you to, to maybe go home and read it again and meditate on it and pray through it uh, during the week. Now, since chapter 11, Jesus has been in and around Jerusalem preparing uh, for the Passover festival. Was that Jaws Close? Last week, Jim took us through chapter 13. Uh, quite a powerful chapter, isn't it? And if you remember how it concludes... Verse 35, chapter 13, have a look. It says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It's, it's talking about preparing for Christ's return and the importance of being prepared for that. But actually, we'll see these themes come up in our passage this evening as well. The importance of being alert and keeping watch. At the start of chapter 14, we see the festival is beginning. Uh, so just scan through the verses with me. Uh, I want to give you a few pointers uh, uh, to help you reflect on later. In verses 1 to 10, 
you see some fascinating reactions to Jesus. You see that the loving, beautiful sacrifice of the, the, the woman breaking that jar of perfume, anointing Jesus, this wonderful sacrifice. But then you've also got the indignation, the kind of disgust of the crowd at what a waste this is. They don't understand. And then surrounding, at the, you know, before and after this, you've got the, the, the chief priests scheming, plotting, wanting to kill Jesus. And then they've got this delight in their hearts as Judas comes uh, to, to uh, offer to betray Jesus. So some interesting reactions. It's worth maybe looking again, meditating on those, reflecting on your own heart and how you react to Jesus. Then in verses 12 to 16, uh, we see God's, we see Jesus' sovereign control. We see how everything is planned out. He sends his disciples off, and everything's there, exactly as he described, ready for the Passover. And it shows us that he's not just in control of that, he's in control of everything that's coming. His arrest, his execution. It's all part of the plan. And then verses 17 through to 31, you get this really interesting contrast. You get Jesus' prediction of the betrayal. And the disciples are deeply sad at this. And then a bit later on in verse 27, you get another prediction that, that all of them are going to kind of fall away. They're going to abandon Jesus. Peter is overconfident, insists he will never do that. But Jesus knows what will happen. He knows their weakness. And yet in the middle of all this, in the middle of these predictions, we have the Passover. We have Jesus giving the bread and the wine and saying, this is my body, this is my blood given for you, given for the, the people that he loves. Isn't it wonderful to see that the, the grace and the love he shows for undeserving disciples? And then we get to verse 32. We get to Gethsemane. It's a word that means olive grove. Uh, and it was a regular place that, that Jesus went to. Luke's gospel that says, as usual, he went there. Maybe it was a, a common place for him to go to find some quiet, a place to pray. But actually what happens this time is perhaps less usual. It's really quite significant. And so we're going to look at it uh, in a bit more detail now, and we're going to think about how it might challenge us and encourage us this evening. My first heading is this. Jesus experiences gr deep distress and sorrow. Deep distress and sorrow. Look at verse 32 again with me. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Now, there's lots going on, and actually, Mark often draws significance to something by there being a kind of set of three things. There's two sets of three that I'm going to point out in this passage. And we see the first one here. You've kind of got three groups of people. You've got the larger group of disciples that, that are coming with Jesus. That he says, stay here while I go and pray. Then you've got a smaller group, just Peter, uh, James and John going with Jesus. So this sort of second group, much smaller, his closest uh, friends. And then he goes on alone. And I think there's significance there because it's almost this picture of actually what he's about to face, he's about to face alone. The support that, that he might need from his closest friends will not be there. His closest friends will soon abandon him. He goes to pray alone. 
But actually the focus is on Jesus' heart. Do you see what's going on here? You see this, this great turmoil inside. You see this deep distress and trouble. He is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It feels like he's dying. You know, one commentator I was reading, he said, this is the, the, the most serious and worst distress recorded in the whole of Scripture. And I think he's right. It is so critical, such a critical moment, such a strong emotion for Jesus to be experiencing. He is overwhelmed, distressed, incredibly sad, troubled, fearful, anxious. I started by getting us thinking about sometimes when we might feel a bit like that. Jesus experiences this depth of emotion far beyond anything that, that we probably ever could. So why? Why is he feeling like this? What's going on in his mind, in his heart? We see uh, as we go on in, the, in verses, the verses, read 35 with me. Going a little farther, he, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, since chapter 8, Jesus has been explaining to his disciples that, that an hour is coming when he is going to be arrested. He's going to be handed over. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be killed. And now that hour is very nearly here. Often you get more stressed and you feel the, the tension building up as something approaches. And the moment is approaching here for Jesus. He's experiencing really deep sorrow. But he turns to the right place. He prays. He asks his father for relief. It's a really powerful prayer. Just look through, look through what Jesus says uh, again in verse 36. He starts by saying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba is a term of really deep, intimate respect between a child and their father. Uh, often it's described as the word daddy, it's like the equivalent of daddy, and that's not, it's not quite as simple as that, because actually older adult children would use that for their fathers, uh, and disciples would use it with their teachers. But it, but it has this real intimacy in the term. And to use it, to come to God, that is unprecedented, that's unheard of. Jesus is addressing his father, and, and kind of expressing that the closeness of their relationship. You know, he's, he's always got access to his father. He can always come saying, Abba, Father. He, he knows his father listens. He worships. You see, he says, everything is possible for you. He knows that what he's about to ask, it, it, the, that, that God the Father could do. Nothing is beyond his limits. And then he says, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. That's an, an Old Testament term. If you, look, if you go through the Old Testament, there are several points where... Uh, it talks about the cup of God's wrath. It's a kind of picture of drinking God's judgment. And Jesus knows he's got this cup. He's facing God's judgment, God's wrath upon sin. As he faces the, the physical torment of the arrest and the, the beating and the crucifixion. But almost more deeper and more painful than that is the spiritual reality he knows he's facing. He's anticipating the time where he will be forsaken by his Abba Father. He will no longer be welcome. He will be rejected and despised. 
We see Jesus' humanity in focus here. Really coming out, we see this, this human reaction to all that he's facing, the, the, the distress, the sadness, the fear. And he says, take it away. Take it away, Father. But he also says, do you see what he also says? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Wow. Now that is an amazing thing to say, isn't it? At that moment, would you be able to say the same thing? Often when we're in distress, we pray for relief, don't we? Do we ever say, but actually, Lord, I'm going to trust your plans rather than what I want for myself. Your will, not my own. Jesus submits to his Father, submits to his salvation plan. And I think he can do that because he's just got so much confidence and and faith and he knows his Father so well. He knows the scriptures so well. You know, when he, earlier he said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. That's a, that's a reference to Psalm 42. And in Psalm 42 it says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? And then it says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. I think Jesus had that in mind, and he's in this moment of deepest distress. But there's hope. And there's a, there's a way for him to trust his father, even in the midst of that. So he humbles himself. He says, not my will, but yours. Gives Jesus strength. That's a good reason for us also to have scripture in our hearts, to be memorizing it, to be taking it to heart. But Jesus was unique. He was unique in his ability to reach this point because he was human. He was fully man and he was fully God. We see that here. We see his humanity revealed as he kind of experiences this distress. We see his divinity, that the close relationship that he has with his father, the Abba Father. Only the perfect son of God, only he could, could lay down his life to, and take that cup, the cup of God's wrath, to, to, to wipe away sin completely. But it wasn't a kind of easy, straightforward thing for Jesus to experience. It seems a bit strange, perhaps. I mean, I think some people might be critical of, of Jesus's emotions here you think well after all if you're a martyr surely you go to your death with with confidence and with boldness i mean think about church history think about all the people who have gone to their death for jesus and they stood firm right to them they they refused to deny christ and they had this boldness inside them what you know what's why has jesus not got that same kind of confidence well maybe not confidence but why is he so distressed I think it's because clearly it's so much deeper and more significant what what he is facing here. He's not just losing his life. He's facing the weight of sin, the the, the cup of wrath. Not that he deserved it, but he was preparing to be forsaken by his Abba Father. He was preparing to lose that that incredible closeness, that relationship, that, that intimacy that he has always known. And I don't know about you, but I think it would be bad enough to stand in front of the Father with just my sin on my shoulders. The weight of everyone's sin on Jesus' shoulders must have just been such a a huge thing to anticipate. And ultimately, martyrs can be bold because they come after that. They know that Jesus has already paid the price for them. They have confidence because of that. But I think it is also a comfort to us to see the humanity of Jesus here. 
He chooses to suffer in our place. He experiences the emotions that, that, that we might experience as well. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it, it kind of points us to this. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus our high priest, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. That word tempted there is a sense of being tested. And Jesus can empathize with our weaknesses because he's experienced them himself. He's been tested in the same ways we have. But where we have failed, he never has. He has never sinned. So he can save us because he has experienced the same things. He's been through the same distress and pain that we might experience ourselves. He knows what it's like. It gives us hope. Our saviour knows what goes on in our own hearts and is sympathetic. He, he understands. In this, but in this moment of, of deepest despair, this moment of deepest grief, he, he expresses his honest desire. If only it could pass me by. But at the same time, he's got this resolve, as he say, not my will, but yours. He he's resolved to do what is necessary to save his people. It's a powerful moment. He knows that there's, there's no other way to save his people, his friends, his, those that he loves from, from their sin. So in this deepest distress, he, he's on the floor, crying out in prayer. What's going on with the disciples? Well, my second heading is this. Jesus experiences deep distress and sorrow while the disciples sleep. While the disciples sleep. Verse 37. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back again, found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Remember I read the end of chapter 13 earlier, which talked about uh, keeping watch and not letting him find you sleeping when he returns. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it, that, that a few hours after that, his keenest disciples can't stay awake for an hour. They're asleep when he returns. Jesus says, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Like I said, the, the word temptation, it, it can have a sense of testing. So rather than you know, an obvious temptation to give in to some sin, this is, this is the testing of their faith, testing their perseverance and, and their strength. Can they be vigilant? Can they follow Jesus? And Jesus says, well, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So true, isn't it? True for us too. How many times do we kind of say, oh, I'm going I'm, to pledge to do something for the Lord, only to, to let him down shortly afterwards. And here it happens three times. Remember, I talked about the threes as an emphasis thing. This is a really strong emphasis that he see the failure of the disciples. That's what we're here to see. We need to see. In Jesus' darkest hour, in the moment he needs them most, he's about to face the cup of wrath. His disciples are asleep. They're not there supporting him. And we're left with this tension. We'll see next week more. But Jesus maybe sees the crowd in the distance coming towards him. The betrayer is coming. 
The hour is coming. We're going to find out more next week about what happens. Jesus will be left alone. Now, in some ways, I feel a bit sympathetic for the disciples. I know what it means, what it feels like to be really tired. And they must have been exhausted and drained. And is it any wonder, late at night, with heavy eyes, they just sort of drop off as they're waiting for Jesus. But, but I think the, the, the Bible, is, you know, the way the, the passage is written is, is telling. It, it should, perhaps they, they should have acted differently. It says they did not know what to say to him. It's like they, they couldn't excuse. They had no answer for their actions. I just find that very familiar too. When I struggle with sin, when, when I sin, I, I realize I have no answer for it. When I lose my temper, when I put other things before my Lord, when I'm selfish and greedy and lustful when I'm convicted of these things ultimately I realise I've got no excuse I've got no answer for why I've done these things I've got no way to justify myself when I let my Lord down that's true for, for all of us isn't it Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God we have no excuse we have nothing to say in response no way of defending ourselves we are weak. The disciples were weak. They, they could not keep watch. They could not pray in their tiredness. And we are weak. We can't go any time at all without sinning. What hope is there? What hope do we have? Here's the hope. My third point. Jesus endured the cross to save those he loves. Jesus endured the cross to save those he loves. As I was preparing, I came across a news story from South Africa, uh, kind of explaining that during the pandemic, sadly, more people were going hungry in the country. Difficulty in finding jobs and just not having enough to, to, to get by. But actually, the article was all about how parents were going hungry for their children. So let me just read you this quote from a single mother who regularly goes hungry. This is what she says. That's what I do what a woman should do. I have four kids and two of them are boys who eat a lot. Me as a mother, I would rather them be happy than me. For me not to eat is not a problem, but for them to starve, no, that would really hurt me. See, in her love, she protects her children from the pain and the suffering that she was experiencing. And we see something similar happening here, but on a much deeper level in this passage. When we think, why did Jesus endure this distress and this sorrow? Why did he go and be arrested and face trial and execution on a cross? Why did he face the darkness of God's wrath for sin? He did that to stop us having to experience the same thing. That's far more significant than protecting someone from hunger. He's protecting us from, from the cup of wrath. He did it to save sinful people, the, like the weak disciples who couldn't stay awake, and like you and me, who are unable to save ourselves. Everything in us is affected by our sin. And yet Jesus came to save us from death and destruction, and he came to, to bring us into his kingdom and make us his family and give us new hope and new joy and for us to be with him forever. It's just wonderful, wonderful to, to realise he went through this for us. That is the heart of the gospel. 
friends. He gave up everything because he loves us. He chose to save us by laying down his life instead of us. We can be so quick, can't we, to forget our deep need for Jesus. feels like we're doing okay. Actually, I look around and I'm doing better than other people. And that's pretty good. And our pride kind of creeps in. We need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. And, and remember to, to compare ourselves to God, the Holy One. And then we realise how far short we are. We have no answer for our sin. We need Jesus. We need him to pay the price, to take our place. Something we could never do ourselves. We need his love. We need his care. And here in the garden, he endures such deep distress and sorrow as he prepares to go to the cross to save sinners, sinful people like you and me. We must never treat it lightly, must we? We must never treat it cheaply. Such a great cost on our behalf. Such wonderful love and grace shown to us. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, if you've been listening to this, have you, have you ever considered the depth of this love, the depth of this sacrifice that Jesus can make for you? For the Son of God to, to go through such pain and distress, to die in your place so that you could be forgiven and loved? Is there anything, is there anyone else that could possibly offer you what Jesus holds out freely for you to, to receive? I'd love to talk to you more about it. Maybe Jesus is calling you today to put your trust in him. Don't ignore that. Come pray with someone. We can explain more. But for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, what should we take from this? I want to just suggest two key words. Joy and strength. Joy and strength. Why joy, you ask? Why joy? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. There was joy coming. He faced the pain and distress of the garden. He laid down his life because he knew joy was coming. What sort of joy is this, we might ask? What does this mean? Let me encourage you to go and read uh, John's Gospel, John 15 to 17. It talks a lot about this. It says in John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. As Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, he's saying, no, I'm doing this so that your joy becomes complete because my joy fills you. Isn't that a staggering thing to, to reflect on? He endured the cross. He looked for, uh, forwards, you know, as he was going through this, to the joy of sharing his joy with us. The joy of eternal life. The joy of, of being with the Father. Of knowing that security. Of knowing that hope. He wants to share that joy. He went through that, that deep distress so that we would know the joy of never having to go through that. So when you look at this passage, when, when you see that the, the despair of Christ and the weakness of the disciples 
it should give us hope somehow. Because we see that Christ went through this to save us because he loves us. We are his friends if we put our trust in him. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. It gives him joy to lay down his life. Isn't that staggering? The son of God coming, loving to pray for sinners enough to, to, to take their place so that they can experience the joy that he has always experienced. The depth of his pain, remember, was because he was about to lose that joy, lose the relationship, be forsaken by his father. He was willing to do that so that we could gain that. So rejoice. Be filled with joy because of all that's been done for you. And one way you can do that is call your father Abba Father. What a privilege that is. We saw what a special name it was. Paul, Paul picks it up in his letters and calls God Abba Father. We have that same relationship as Jesus because of what he's done for us. What a wonderful, joyful thing that is. The second thing I wanted to pick up on was strength. Joy and strength. On their own, the disciples, they had no strength, did they? To, to keep watch, to pray. It just wasn't possible. They, they, they had nothing left. But after Jesus died and rose again, after the Holy Spirit came, they had the strength of God with them. They, they had great boldness and confidence to go and proclaim Christ and proclaim what a joy and what a difference he had made to their lives. It's the same with us, friends. Left on our own, we've got no hope. We've got no power to resist sin and live for Jesus. But if we're putting our trust in him, we're not on our own anymore. We're forgiven, we're safe, we're united with Christ. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that means he can give us strength to, to stand firm when we go through trials, when we face real pain and real difficulty. He's there with us, he knows that pain. It means that giving in to temptation is no longer inevitable. He gives us the strength to stand up under it, to resist. So let me encourage you to find strength here too, to, to find strength to watch and pray, to remain in his love by, by doing what he says. Never in your own strength, but always in his strength. What a privilege it is to be a friend of Jesus. Friends, I, I hope this passage has given you joy and strength this afternoon. Yes, we, we are weak failures on our own. We have no hope. But Jesus endured the pain and anguish of the cross so that we could be his beloved, forgiven friends. What wonderful news. We need to rejoice. Why don't we pray a prayer of joy and then I'm, uh, we're going to sing again, I believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please fill us with joy this evening as we reflect on the wonderful news of your love for us. You laid down your life so that we never had to face the cup of wrath. You, you went through that distress and pain and anguish so that we would know joy and forgiveness and peace. We thank you so much, Lord. Please fill our hearts with thankfulness and joy as we sing and as we remember your sacrifice around the Lord's table in a few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.